0: Hi everyone, my name is Nick Harris and I am a fellow in the Middle East Security Program at the Center for New American Security. The Middle East Security Program is wrapping up a year-long project where we investigated different policy options for the U.S. as it charts out a new approach to the Syrian crisis. In particular, our study investigated how the U.S. could leverage Syria's fragmentation in a way that it could affect an outcome that benefits the United States and the broader international community. We are conducting a series of podcasts that look at some of the thornier issues that have impacted U.S. policy towards Syria since 2011. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for an interesting episode on Russia, Hezbollah, and Iran. Oh, my. We're fortunate to be joined by three leading experts on this topic matter. First, Anna Borshevskaya. Anna is a senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. She's a world-renowned expert on Russia's Middle East policy, the dynamics in U.S.-Russian relations, and Russia's foreign policy. We're also joined by Hanin Gador. Hanin is the inaugural Friedman Visiting Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. She is an expert on Shia politics throughout the Levant, with a special focus on Iran's Hezbollah network and Iran's grown influence in the Middle East. And last but not least, we are joined by Brian Katz. Brian is a visiting fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where he focuses on Middle East security, Iranian regional operations, and counterterrorism. He previously served in the office of the Secretary of Defense as the country director for Syria policy, where he was involved in international negotiations over the Syrian civil war and strategic planning in the counter-ISIS campaign. Brian was also an analyst in the intelligence community following the Levant closely. Thank you Anna, Hanin, and Brian for joining us today. Now, Brian, I want to start off the conversation with sort of an exploration of the extent to which Russia and Iran can dictate the actions of the Assad regime. Uh, a lot of Syria analysts have debated the extent to which Bashar al-Assad and his regime have the freedom to make their decisions. And there is a significant amount of debate as well among experts about which of the two powers, Russia or Iran, is actually in the pole position to determine the future of Syria. In your analysis, what do you believe is the extent of Russia and Iran's power over the Assad regime? So
1: I think the Assad regime since the beginning of the Civil War, but really I think 2015 was the pivotal point with Russia's major intervention into the conflict, has been doing a balancing act between Russia and Iran in terms of who has the most influence over decision-making in Damascus. Now, for most of that period, those strategic interests between Russia and Iran have aligned with those of Assad. It was first to win the Civil War, if you will, in Western Syria, culminating in the recapture of Aleppo in 2017, and then simultaneously to check the expansion of U.S. and Kurdish influence in the northeast, spurring their campaign to go into eastern Syria on the south side of the Euphrates in parallel with the U.S.-led coalition. And of course, Iran's influence, my analysis is that that has been the longer lasting influence in the real inner sanctum of the regime given the nature of the so-called axis of resistance going back to the 1980s, but really early 2000s under Bashar al-Assad, where that became very close. Um, And Russia is playing catch up, but they each have different levers to play. For Iran, and I include Hezbollah within this, they have been there on the ground within these security services, within these military forces, before the conflict and during it. They were the ones there since 2013, winning these key battles. So I think that gives them a lot of influence with Bashar and those in the key positions around him in Damascus and security services. Um, And I think it has instilled in Assad and his, his senior leaders a degree of loyalty, if you will. Loyalty only goes so far, like anywhere, particularly in Syria and the Middle East. But still, I think Assad knows who really was there to win the war for him when it mattered most at its most dire points. And that was Iran and Hezbollah. I think from the Russian side, of course, they were the big you know, international heavyweight that came in in 2015 and played a key role in enabling a lot of those ground forces to go take those key battles and those victories in western Syria and out east. But Russia, and of course Anna can speak more to this, they bring that sort of great regional power, that economic weight that, of course, Assad is looking for now as well to reconstruct the areas of the country that he views uh, as the most critical to the stability of his regime. So in short, I think it's still a balancing act. I still put Iran and Hezbollah at slightly more influential in the decision making of Assad because what he cares about most is still internal stability and security, though Russia's role relatively has been increasing.
2: Yeah, sure, uh, if, if I could pick up on those points, Brian. Um, you know, one thing that I, I I will never forget is you remember uh, when Putin announced his second so-called full withdrawal, and I'm using quotation marks, um, when he traveled to Syria? Uh, and there was a photo, I, it may have been Reuters, I don't remember for sure. Um, basically, uh, uh, Russian uh, military personnel kind of pushing Assad aside uh, to let Putin speak. Uh, and I think it's one of those photos that speaks a thousand words that shows you, uh, that displays Russian influence uh, in this situation. So he did come in, Putin did come in and he saved Assad. And, um, and the fact of the matter is uh, Assad owes him. Now, uh, Assad, I'm sure is, is, he's not an easy partner for the Kremlin, um, but, but that military victory, uh, and this, uh, the point that you made earlier, the economic weight, the, the next state, the next phase that Syria is entering, um, I think is pretty important. I also tend to agree, I agree with you, I think Iran and Hezbollah have unbalanced more influence, uh, but the Russian side of the equation clearly matters, right, because uh, uh, because they're, they're mutual interests that Assad and Russia have. They do want sort of a degree of stability. They want the next phase in Syria. Now, uh, what's interesting here from the Russian perspective is the Kremlin can easily uh, live with low level conflict. Um, they're not, they're not so pressed for time. Um, and, and you know, to me, there's a lot of echoes of, of frozen conflicts that Russia had created in the post-Soviet space to begin with. So Russia knows how to live in a situation of a frozen conflict. Now, when things are boiling over and they're out of control, that's a different scenario. But, that, but the fact of the matter is Putin has positioned himself as this power broker and like it or not, we also, we, that is America, we also have to talk to Russia in Syria. And uh, and that gives Putin a lot of leverage and a lot of diplomatic clout. Even if there's this power multiplier effect when Russia is not necessarily as powerful as it seems, um, it still matters.
3: The recent tensions we've been hearing about between Russia and Iran made some people think that there's a conflict between Russia and Iran and a conflict that uh, who is going to control Damascus, who is going to control the regime, who is going to to control the decision-making in Damascus. But I really believe that these tensions that we're seeing here and there are just Russia and Iran negotiating over space, Mm -hmm. and it's just slight tension instead of like real conflict. They're negotiating space, now that the military operations have subsided. So now they are in a phase where, okay, so we both won, who is gonna get what? So this is what we're seeing today. And I don't think there's a real issue and it's easy for them to negotiate the space because they both invested in very different entities. uh, Russia invested in state institutions, in the regime's institutions, security institutions, military institutions, and to a certain extent, the economy. Iran has invested in something completely different. Iran has invested in parallel entities, parallel militias, parallel uh, structures. That is, the uh, foreign militias that were brought into Syria, but also they created their own uh, entities, parallel institutions inside Syria. So to a certain extent, Iran was investing in parallel parallel structures that is not the official uh, security and military structures that was left to Syria. But today, we also see see within these parallel entities, uh, they're starting to creep in the official entities. So Iran is investing more in the fourth division, headed by Maher al-Assad, and the Russians are creating their own fifth division (laughs) that basically has its own thing, so they're not competing they're having their own uh, uh, entities where the iranians feel that it's time to go inside the state institutions and this is a thing that they've learned from lebanon you create parallel entities you strengthen these parallel entities and then from there you go into state institutions so that's what they're doing with the fourth division today of course it's not lebanon because russia is very present and it has its own institutions investments so Today they're negotiating this space within the institutions. While they're doing that, Iran is actually very much investing in soft power. So they do understand that eventually the Iranian boots on the ground in terms of Shia militias are going to go. And when, not necessarily when we reach a political solution in Syria, but at one point, uh, this is conflict is going to change. And they want to build roots. So most of their investment today, after creating these parallel entities, is to use these parallel entities to invest in soft power initiatives. Soft power initiatives that is demographic changes, new laws that legit- legitimize demographic changes, uh, working with tribes in Dairzour Bukamal, uh, providing small aid and uh, salaries to certain uh, uh, tribes and young people in the south of Syria. They're focusing these soft power initiatives on what they see as their useful Syria. So this is also part of the division between the two. So Iran is focused on the useful Syria. And today the useful Syria is a place where they need to build roots in order to have soft power if the military power is no longer an option.
0: So this is a really interesting point that you make here, Hanin, because fundamentally what we see in terms of the broader U.S. approach, I would say over the course of two administrations, and please correct me if this is an inaccurate perspective, is that particularly when Russia came in big in September 2015 and really upped the ante militarily against Bashar al-Assad's armed opposition opponents, In effect, Russia became the guarantor of stability of the Western Mm Levant, And in effect, Mm -hmm. Russia is expected, in a way, to manage Iran's ambitions so that you don't see a broader regional conflict. My question to you all is, to what extent can the United States and the international community actually depend on Russia to stage manage the removal of Iranian-backed groups from Syria, which is Mm -hmm. one of the One of the 12 key demands that the Trump administration has placed on Iran is that it withdraws from Syria. And to what extent can Russia sort of serve as a break wall against a rising Iranian tide throughout the greater Middle East? And Anna, I wanna start with you.
2: Sure, yeah, no, this is a critically important question. And let let me just start by saying, I've never believed that Russia could separate from Iran. Uh, I thought this was wishful thinking, and I still think that. Um, uh, you know, the point that you made, Hanin, earlier, I think is right, is that, yeah, they're negotiating, they're trying to figure out these spheres of influence. And Russia understands spheres of influence very well. That's very familiar language (laughs) for for Russia. But that's not the same thing as having a split. Uh, That's not the same thing as pushing back. Um, You know, and we've also, what I find fascinating is there have been reports uh, several months ago, for example, of Hezbollah flying under the uh, Russian flag to avoid being targeted by Israel. There have been reports about uh, certain uh, m- uh, people switching uniforms. Um, so uh, that's, and again, Russia can do that very well, uh, switching uniforms, creating uh, um, creating a, a perception that things seemingly are changing when they're really not. Um, Russia has first, I don't think, any desire, and second, any ability to really curb Iranian activities in any meaningful way. Um, the, the reason why there's no desire, I think, is there's several reasons. One, Russia's entire Syria strategy has been predicated on a partnership with Iran, because Iran did all the heavy lifting. Um, you remember in the beginning of the uh, the Syria intervention. Uh, so many people had said, "Well, this is going to be just another Afghanistan for Russia." Well, one reason why it was never going to be this way is because of Iran. Mm. Uh, in, in Afghanistan, if you recall, uh, thousands of body bags came home. Instead, thousands of body bags were coming home to Iran, not to not to Russia. Um, so, uh, so I don't think there's any real desire. But also, not, if you think about uh, ability, let's say, let's we let's imagine for a second that Russia did want. To curb Iranian ambitions in any meaningful way, um, let's look at what Russia has available on the ground to do that. Um, at least according to open sources, there's there's usually anytime between four to six thousand Russian military personnel on the ground. Um, no, they rotate constantly, but is that really enough um, to to make it to make a difference? Um, what are you know What are Russian goals? Um, So I don't think, uh, you know, does Russia have even, um, does Russia have a record of successful peacemaking? Russia has a successful record, again, of frozen conflicts but uh, but not of any, Russia can't, uh, let me rephrase this. Um, Russia has its own internal problems that go back to the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, a lot of internal uh, lack of reconciliation problems internally. So how can a country that has its own internal issues lead a reconciliation effort externally? Uh, let me phrase it like that. And. Um, um, yeah, they're, they're in this position, uh, they've positioned themselves as, as this critical manager, but managing a conflict or conflicts is very different from actually resolving them. So Russia derives benefits from being in this position because they have leverage over everybody um, and it necessitates their presence, but they're not actually creating a resolution.
1: So to your question, to, to what extent can the U.S. rely on Russia to deliver an Iranian and Iranian-backed militia withdrawal from Syria? I think the answer is zero. If, it, if it's less than zero is possible, let's say that. But zero, let's start with that. As Anna was saying, first, let's have a piece of evidence going back to 2015, where the United States was trying to rely upon Russia for something in Syria. That was in 2016, the cessation of hostilities agreement for the Syrian civil war. Um, I was involved in a lot of those negotiations during 2016 uh, in Switzerland with the international community including the Russians. And what became clear over the course of the year was that at different times Russia lacked either the will or capability to deliver the pro-Assad alliance on actually uh, taking part in the ceasefire. Lack of will. It makes sense because they still had, the alliance had unmet objectives in the civil war, which was retaking Aleppo and really ensuring that continuity across useful Syria for the regime. Lack of capability as well. And again, this gets to to Anna's point as well. How does one actually ensure that the other actors within your alliance that you are representing in front of the international community, you can actually deliver? Russia's ability to deliver the regime this constellation of militias, Iran, Hezbollah, on actually putting down their arms. What does that look like in practice? How do you actually enforce it amongst yourselves? And that we just did not see. Flash forward to 2017 and this intensification of of discussions of, again, looking to Russia as the guarantor or expediter of Iran and Iranian-backed groups uh, from Syria and, and their withdrawal. And once again, there's this question of will and capability. You need both to actually trust them to be able to deliver. And again, I think they lack both. The will, again, they are still this quasi-alliance together in Syria, still fighting for some objectives in the war. There are still elements of the civil war that are not won, such as Idlib province. Um, reports of violence on the increase even in places like southern Syria, and of course still dealing with the after effects of the campaign into eastern Syria and any threats from ISIS that could be re-emerging from that area. So they still need to maintain some degree of cooperation and continuity. But again, the capability to actually force an Iranian withdrawal. When Iran and Hezbollah decide something is in their strategic interests and they're willing to use force to go achieve it, You have to use force historically to get them to not want to achieve those objectives anymore. What are the Russians going to do? Physically go down into Knutra province and dismantle Iran and Hezbollah's weapons infrastructure down there? What does Iran and Hezbollah get out of that? That is a strategic objective for them, creating the second front against Israel. Russia doesn't have the capability to deliver that. And I think anyone promising or putting faith in Russia to deliver that is living in fantasy land.
2: So, you know, I just, uh, yeah, I wanted to add uh, to to what Brian said, R- recall, look at how Russia approaches counterinsurgency, right? Look at the bombing of Aleppo. Uh, look at how Russia labeled everybody who opposes as- Assad as a terrorist. Um, is this really, uh, the type of country, the type of state, I should say, that can uh, e- either lead any peace negotiations, or, or or invest in any effort to really to really look into the very complicated mosaic that this region really is, and to separate people, you know, c- killing everybody off, which is the Russian approach, which is what they did in Chechnya. Uh, is not the way to, st- to create any stability. It's not the way to push back on anybody. It's frankly a way to, um, again, antagonize
3: everybody in the long term.
0: Hanin <coughs> I mean, you want to weigh in?
3: Yes. Uh, one, I definitely agree with my colleagues about this, like the chances are zero. But the fact that we're actually asking ourselves this question, it means that the Russians it succeeded at making us think that they can do that, which is very dangerous. The fact that we are considering this is, is is a success for Russia. And they're playing this game. And Anna would know better about how they play this game, but they succeeded in playing this game, and we are actually sitting here discussing this as, as a serious question. So back to what Brian said about what they can do. There have been some incidents where they actually, some Russian forces with regime forces, went to the Qasir, where Hezbollah is located, and they tried to clash with one of Hezbollah people on one of the checkpoints in Qasir. So what happened, and this incident tells you everything. You need to know about what can they do. They went to Qasir, they asked Hezbollah guys to uh, leave that checkpoint because they needed for something, and uh, Hezbollah refused. They tried to clash with them. The result, basically, that Hezbollah stayed, and the Russians and the regime forces retreated and couldn't do anything. That's exactly what they can do, nothing. Because on the ground, Iran is much stronger than the Russians they have the leverage on the ground it's as simple as that look at the but again this is not this is also a matter of of willingness the russians do not want to get iran out of syria this is very clear for now because and they play the game and they made us make us think that they are trying but they do not have the leverage. It's like trust us we are trying but you know they're very strong on the ground this is something else that they want us to believe that they are actually trying which is not true they're not trying they're playing the game And it's very simple. If you look at the south of Syria, the Daraa Qanitra region, when this agreement between the Jordanians, uh, the Americans, and and the Russians was signed in order to get the Iranian troops, uh, Iranian militias away uh, from the Israeli and Jordanian border, everybody thought that it was a great achievement for Russia. So what happened? Switched uniforms. The militia for Iran's militia switched uniforms. The Russians knew about it from day one. They are present there. They were supposed to be monitoring this. They switched uniforms from day one. And today, they don't even have to switch uniforms. They're present there. Everybody knows about it. It's a big failure for this agreement, but it's not a big failure for Russia because they got exactly what they want from it. They failed to get the Iranian forces out, but they succeeded in making us think that they just couldn't they really wanted but they couldn't and that's the game that they're playing and they succeeded at it and the iranians are set on the border and today they 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 don't mind because again the division is the south of syria the suburbs of damascus and part of damascus the borders of lebanon are iranians and the, cost, uh, the coastal, the Alawite coast, is mostly Russians. And this is, this is what everybody wanted. And then they don't, they don't really uh, mind. To go to get the Russians to uh, help with the Iranians in Syria is not going to work. We need to start thinking of a very different strategy. And not rely on the Russians. But maybe there are some, I'm not saying that it's completely useless to uh, coordinate with the Russians because there are two, uh, some minorities in Syria who really look up to the Russians, mainly the Alawites, who do not like the Iranian influence and what it's done to Syria, and the Christians, the Orthodox Christians, who are very uh, present and. Um, uh, look up to the to the Russians with these two communities the Alawites and the Orthodox Christians Russia can help but not on the Iranian issue. think
1: there's been the conventional analysis or even assumption that Russia's provision of great conventional military power necessarily translates into influence on the ground and has as Sanin's example very clearly demonstrated from somewhere like Kusair, that is not necessarily the case. You can have all of the MiGs that you want sitting up at Hamamy Airfield, but at the end of the day, what does that mean in the towns and villages where this war was fought, and where influence on the ground is what's going to matter to the regime and to Iran and Hezbollah going forward? What does that mean at the end of the at the end of the day for your ability to actually have influence in those areas? I think the Iranian approach is that we have this influence in Damascus at the key leadership level in the security services and the military. Part because those relationships go back in some cases decades to Lebanon and to Syria before and they were there actually putting blood and treasure and taking this ground back from the armed opposition. They're the ones who control that ground. And just because Russia has this conventional military weight does not mean that necessarily means they have influence down at that provincial or even lower level.
0: We haven't seen that translation. So, this is a really you know, robust discussion on the extent to which Russia and Iran actually manage each other's relations. And it does seem that the group, you know, you all have come to this consensus that dependent on Russia to diminish Iran or force the removal of Iran-backed groups from Syria is a foolish venture, let's say it's. Yes. But you know, one of the challenges that we observed in our report and one that we're very concerned about is the possibility for an Israeli-Iranian mm-hmm. escalation in Syria. Now we make the argument in our report that in fact, Israel and Iran are at war already in Syria. They, are, they still, though, could go up a few runs in the escalation ladder. And I believe we're all concerned that an Israeli-Iranian conflict that started in western Syria uh, would, could potentially spread uh, throughout the region, and it would be a region-shaking conflict. Now, the question i like to pose to you, all of you is that it seems that the current strategy that the Israelis are pursuing is to essentially build sort of their fortress, their iron wall, and when they feel that there is a potential imminent threat, to strike it, and to strike it hard, and then to retreat back. And you, we saw that, we saw in how the Israelis uh, gave away, essentially, their sort of Kunetra zone of influence. We saw, we've seen it in how the Israelis, at least at the official level, talk about, you know, they're great, dialogue that they have between Netanyahu and Putin, but when you talk to Israeli analysts at the lower working level, there really isn't much relationship between the Russian military and the the IDF. So my question to you all is, how concerned should we be that there will be an Iranian-Israeli conflict that's ignited as a result of Iran and Iranian-backed groups' activities in Syria, and can Russia at least serve the role of a referee between Israel and Iran? And Hanina, I want to
3: start with you. Sure. This is a very, very important question because now not everybody in Washington is talking about this possibility this summer. Actually, the media, the Arab media and the Lebanese media is heating up, has been heating up in the past week, precisely, uh, about this because uh, Hezbollah's leader, Hassan Nasrallah, talked finally about it. And he said that this is a possibility, that this is going to be a hot summer. However. Let's not just rush ourselves into this possibility because we need to think, as you said exactly, Israel's strategy. They had three threats that they needed to deal with. If they couldn't deal with them, they will go for a war. So threat number one is Syria, Iran moving to Syria to its borders this has been more or less taken care of the majority and let's say the most sensitive iran's military facilities in syria have been destroyed they have been trying to move them today to uh, to the north but iran, israel is going to be after them in syria that's no there's no question about it it's not complicated they've been hitting iranian targets in syria iran has never retaliated hezbollah has never retaliated that's easy The second threat is uh, Hezbollah's precision missiles, which they have moved to Lebanon. And there are some reports that they also have moved some of them to Iraq. And these basically, uh, it's a project that Iran has started by sending GPS kits to Hezbollah in order for them to turn their regular missiles into more precise missiles. The latest information that we have on this is that they have managed to transform a few of these missiles. Some say it's, a, it's between a couple of dozens and a hundred missiles. The problem is that, Hezbollah's problem, is that the range of these missiles have to be 10 meters. They haven't reached that. The ones that they have completed do not have this 10 meter range. They're still not as accurate as they want them to be. So Israel is not in a rush to destroy them because if they go in Lebanon after Hezbollah against these facilities in Lebanon, this is not Syria. This is violating 1701, but also Hezbollah might retaliate from Lebanon. They're not retaliating from Syria, but in Lebanon, of course, there are different ways of doing this. You can do targeted attacks, you can do covered attacks, and you can go to a war. But in any case, there's a possibility for Hezbollah to retaliate. So they're, they're considering this, Israel is considering this, they're not gonna rush into a war. The third threat, which has been completely <coughs> dealt with, is the tunnels. This is something that uh, we've been hearing about in media every day that a new tunnel has been discovered and they destroyed it. So this is a third threat. So we can say that the threats, not only in Syria, but even in Lebanon, hasn't reached the threshold of a necessity of a war from Israel. On Hezbollah's side, they're not going to start a war. They cannot start a war because if they start a war, they will lose everything. And they know that they are having a financial crisis. They cannot afford uh, paying their employees and their fighters fighters their salaries anymore. They cannot think of a war if they have this. But the most important part for them, Hezbollah will not start a war before guaranteeing reconstruction. In 2006, they started a war knowing that everybody will rush and reconstruct Lebanon. Today, this is not the case. The Lebanese government is Hezbollah's government, or at least pro-Hezbollah's government. Uh, It's not March 14 government like in 2006, and there is no guarantee for reconstruction at all, plus the fact that they have a financial crisis. And in addition, you have the refugees that they cannot deal with, because 2006 they went to Syria, they went to Beirut and and the other parts of of the country. Today, the refugees from the south and the Bekaa cannot go anywhere, We're already having a Syrian refugee issue in Lebanon that we have to deal with. So Hezbollah's not gonna start this. Uh, it might actually start somewhere else. It doesn't have to be a Hezbollah-Israel war at the beginning in Lebanon. It might start. It might start uh, today in in uh, Iraq. It might start in uh, uh, in Iran. It might start. It's not. It's not really the classical Hezbollah, Iran-Israeli war that we are used to. It's not more because Hezbollah today is not a Lebanese militia. Hezbollah today is a regional militia, and they can start the war from anywhere. But it would definitely, if it happens, it would definitely come to Syria and Lebanon, and will become a regional war, not a Lebanon-Israel war. So, but we're not there yet because it's that big.
0: No, Hanine. I just want to build off that point quickly to say that. I agree, and in our report, we do mention the concept of a Hezbollah network. Mm -hmm. You know, the transnational, mainly Shia jihadist network Mm. of fighters from Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, as well as Lebanese Hezbollah Mm -hmm. and some other elements, including the resistance access of non-Shia associated Mm militias. And it's interesting, to your point, what I have noticed is that Israeli sort of national security analysts really over the last six months, have started picking up this, well, you have to be concerned about Iraq talking points. Mm. And they come to the United States and they say, why isn't the US doing more about Iran and Hezbollah network in Iraq? Mm. And it's interesting, it's almost like, well, where were you guys for the last decade? Because, mm. But the fact that this is now a new talking point is fascinating It may indicate, like you're saying, that they realize that the potential threat for them and for their security could come from other unexpected places. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely, I think what you term sort of the
1: Hezbollah network, <coughs> I conceive of now as this axis of resistance has become more of like a regional alliance of actors with Iran at the top, but actors who are committed to each other's mutual defense against common enemies, The who is the axis resisting? It is this constellation of US Israel, Saudi Arabia, UAE and they say the talk theories, that ISIS and Al-Qaeda are a part of that as well. It's more for propaganda. But yeah, this view that the US, Israel, the Gulf partners are one common enemy amongst them. I think that is ingrained now in the thinking and ideology of these groups. And in part, it's because they fought together. This sort of cauldron of war across the Middle East, post-Arab Spring, and then really with the rise of ISIS, you saw in Iraq, in Syria, and to a lesser extent in Yemen, these groups all fighting together. They do view themselves as brothers in arms willing to go fight for each other. So it's reasonable that if Israel is intensifying pressure against Hezbollah in Lebanon, which I agree is... um, Not likely, but is the course of action that would lead to this most dire scenario. we talk more about that. But that if the U.S. is perceived as being part of Israel's action, the U.S. needs to think about the security of its forces in Iraq because those Iraqi Shia groups from the Hashd al-Shaabi may be willing to conduct action against U.S. forces in support of their brothers from Hezbollah because that's how the nature of this conflict could be. It can play out across the arena. I think to piggyback on Hanin's point, I think that's right. I think Israel and Iran have come to this sort of accommodation in Syria. Israel, there was a lot of nuance with their strike campaign the last two years. They essentially said, our red line here is your establishment of your own Iranian infrastructure and architecture here in Syria. We're not letting you replicate what you did in Lebanon here in Syria. And the strikes have been very precise, as Zineen said, targeting infrastructure, not targeting leadership, because the Israelis know that would be viewed as escalatory and could then elicit a response that could then lead to further escalation. I think the most likely scenario, I I agree, it is if Hezbollah's development of these um, precision guidance munitions reach a point that Israel has concluded has eroded their technological advantage, um, and has eroded the capabilities of their air defenses and enables Hezbollah to precision target key elements of the Israeli military and intelligence and economy around Israel, that could be the thing that forces Israel to finally rip off that bandaid of not wanting to go back in and do anything in Lebanon since 2006. I think that is the thing that could lead to this most dire scenario, direct action in Lebanon, then spilling over into Syria, and then this constellation of, I call this sort of the Axis allies, then conducting action
0: elsewhere, targeting Israel and potentially the US. I just want to build off that point, Brian, and I'd say that my favorite adjective that, uh, that the resistance network uses is Zio Wahhabi. So we should all be concerned about a Zio Wahhabi conspiracy. In the Middle East um, and I think we should return I think that it's interesting to that to that extent that you mentioned it that this issue of precision guided missiles and munitions PGMs is the game changer and I agree and we've we highlighted that in the report that the use of PGMs by Hezbollah the Hezbollah network or even the Assad regime if it becomes so infiltrated by Iranian-backed actors, that it also becomes a combatant in a future conflict between Lebanon, and Hezbollah, and Israel, will make things much more dire. Anna.
2: Yes, yeah, so I, uh, I wanted to pick up on your, the other half of your question, uh, which is, um, can Russia be a referee? <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, well, actually, I, before I do that, I just want to uh, underscore uh, Hanin's earlier point. That here we are talking about again, Russia as a referee. Yeah. Um, and that in and of itself again shows just how much influence putin has been able to build up i mean look at this entire conversation not once did russia come up in this discussion that that Hanine and brian uh... had and yet again we're talking about russia as a as a referee uh... mean, it, it's really quite fascinating right um, I mean, the short answer to your question is uh... russia will play the referee sure that's exactly what they'd want to do uh... i also think that I don't think they want. I, I don't think they want um, this conflict to get out of control. I think they're quite. They'd be quite nervous about it. But, um, but if it did, they're going to do exactly that. And and they have. They've built the groundwork for that because both everybody perceives Russia as this mediator, right? Uh, uh, Putin has hosted Hezbollah uh, years ago. Um, the fact of the matter is Hezbollah learned from Russia in Syria, and at the, and yet Israel also perceives Russia as this actor who can curb back Iranian activities, who can talk to everybody, who can uh, serve a, who can create back channels and so forth. So I think they will very much play that game, again to their advantage, to build leverage over everybody and ultimately nothing will get resolved.
0: So I think that one of the interesting uh, dynamics that's come up in our discussion is in fact, just how important Lebanese Hezbollah is to this entire scenario because in in a in, in very real way, Lebanon is a particular province of Syria. And if the IRGC has managed to make Western Syria and Lebanon one, one sort of area of strategic depth for its Hezbollah network to apply strategic pressure on Israel and potentially use PGMs to destroy the Israeli economy and send it back to the war of independence that it fought in the late, late 40s, that in of itself is immense pressure that it can apply on the Israelis. My last question to the group is this. I have had a, n- a number of different officials from the administration say that they are the most active administration in the history of the United States in countering Lebanese Hezbollah, and that they believe the current maximum pressure sanctions campaign against Iran is degrading Lebanese Hezbollah's ability to be a powerful social, social, political, and military actor in Lebanon and the broader Middle East. If Lebanese Hezbollah is the key to everything when it comes to Iran's ability to apply strategic pressure on Israel. My question to you all, is the administration's strategy working to that effect? And if the administration has walked back from Secretary Tillerson's desire to create a transition from the Assad regime. In fact, is only looking to change in the Assad regime's behavior. Does that therefore provide Hezbollah with a new lifeline? I have had several Lebanese analysts tell me that the only way that you defeat Lebanese Hezbollah in the long term is by removing the Assad regime in Damascus. So I'd like us to tackle this 800-pound gorilla before we end our conversation. Who would like to start, Hanif?
3: Yeah, this is another important question. It's, I think you asked more than one question here. Uh, Let's start with the word, keyword here is strategy. I think, yes, sanctions are working. Uh, The sanctions on Iran are working on Hezbollah, not necessarily the Hezbollah, but the sanctions on Iran are definitely weakening Hezbollah. But sanctions are not a strategy. Sanctions are a very efficient tool But then again, I go back to, always go back to this quote uh, during one of my interviews with the Hezbollah commander. He said, yes, sanctions are working, and yes, we have a problem with our constituency. Yes, a lot of people, we're losing a lot of support because of our financial crisis, but we are not worried because when this is over, they will come back. They have nowhere to go. And he is absolutely right. Sanctions can weaken Hezbollah to a certain extent. Sanctions can weaken Iran to a certain extent. But one, they know how to deal with sanctions. They've done it before. They do austerity measures. They wait until this is over. They 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 uh, uh, strengthen their resistance economy, etc. And two, where would these people go? So if this strategy doesn't address this question of creating alternatives competing with Hezbollah where they're weak, then these people will suffer because of sanctions and will have nowhere to go. So I think today to weaken Hezbollah, you have to address this main issue, is how to create alternative to the Shia community, how to create alternative to the Lebanese people. If you want to compete with Hezbo- if you want to weaken Hezbollah, you have to compete with Hezbollah where they're weak. That is, if they are financially weak, you have to create financial alternatives for the Shia community. Another layer of this is political. It's very easy to say we sanction Hezbollah, but Hezbollah has a cash economy. They don't really use banks. They don't really use, they they use cash all the time. So if you really want to have an effective policy in Lebanon, you have to start Looking at Hezbollah's enablers, Hezbollah's allies who actually have bank accounts and international bank accounts. Because Hezbollah, without these people, doesn't control much. Hezbollah, without their Shia allies and Christian allies and Sunni allies and Druze allies, they do not control the majority of the government or the parliament. So, this is where they weaken Hezbollah politically, not just financially. So, you have two fronts against Hezbollah the political front, where they go after their allies, and the Financial front where they go for sanctions, but the end result you need to know what do you want to do with this, right? This is the main issue. Like what's next when you weaken Hezbollah? What do you want that next? You need to create. You need to think of bringing back the political balance to Lebanon, working with the people of Lebanon who still think that there is a possibility of going against Hezbollah. There's still the opposition is still there, but it's not in the, on the political level. It's on the street. So you need you need to think about that and compete with Hezbollah where, where they're weak. On the Assad regime, yes, they need the Assad regime, uh, but it's not the only way to weaken Hezbollah. It's one of the ways to think of, of weakening Hezbollah. It's a good link for them, but it's not the only way.
1: Nick, I think it gets back to the sort of first order fundamental question is what is the purpose of sanctions? And it's to affect the behavior of the entity that you're sanctioning. And I think what we've seen in Lebanon with Hezbollah is, as Samin said, yes, certainly they're in a period of financial duress that's filtered throughout the organization. But has that duress really translated into one, a change in the behavior that we're most concerned about, and two, undermine their core pillars of strength? And I would argue that neither has been the case, you know, undermining their behavior. One, you could argue that Hezbollah is at its peak of its strength militarily, politically, in the history of the organization. Politically, they have their ally, Michel Aoun, and the free patriotic movement in the presidential palace. Um, Sure, there may be tensions, but that essentially gives them that political cover they need in Lebanon to continue pursuing their military objectives. So they don't really have to worry about that. On the military side, again, have the sanctions really impacted the core pillars? The core pillar, you know, we've been talking about some of the higher end weaponry here on the precision guidance, munitions, things of that nature. But the core pillar of the organization is still the infantry. It is their ability to fight and win on the ground, whether it was offensive in Syria or defensive guerrilla warfare in southern Lebanon. I would argue that Hezbollah is actually the most combat capable and effective Arab army Today, Sure, there are small elements of special operations forces in Lebanon, Iraq, UAE that are good at discrete counterterrorism missions. But for a force to maneuver, take terrain, win back a city, fight another nation's army, I think Hezbollah is the most capable and that's been proven on the battlefield. That, whether it's sanctions or any other type of financial pressure, it is hard to envision that eroding that strength is probably something that's gonna happen over the course of decades to, to compete with that type of influence and hope that some type of shakeup of, of the region or of Lebanese politics or the Shia population in Lebanon can cause that type of internal fissure within the organization. But in the near term, yes, financial pressure can have an effect We haven't seen it have the effect we desire, which is to curb their regional operations and curb their internal political and military strength. I think those are still at their height, and it's hard to see those in the next couple years diminishing either.
2: I wanna bring up a more general point. Uh, As I was listening to Hanin and Brian talk right now about sanctions, uh, specifically on Hezbollah, um, this is a broader point that goes beyond Hezbollah in particular. One is in, in about lack of policy and using sanctions as a substitute for policy, because uh, that's certainly happening with regard to Russia also. Uh, sanctions are great as a tool, but they're no substitute for policy. Um, my other point is that we are increasingly shifting in our, in our uh, uh, policy discussions to a great power competition, uh, Russia and China, right? Um, Uh, you know, for the last several months, most of the panels that I've been on now include Russia and China in the Middle East. And um, uh, what I find fascinating is that certainly the United States uh, retains a robust presence in the region, but we've been turning away from this region for years now. It started under the Obama administration, and it's continuing now under the current one. Um, We're talking about great power competition, but we're actually not engaging in great power competition. Uh, Russia has been Russia is competing with us and China is competing with us Uh, but but we're not now again Syria is very specific we're certainly present in Syria but more broadly there's a broader context and that is um, if you want to talk about great power competition uh, There's a big question to be asked that is very much debated in Washington, and that is whether the Middle East is a distraction from this great power competition or not. And and I would argue it's absolutely not. And I think this discussion shows just how important this region is, especially uh, the last question that uh, Hanin and Brian have talked about, this uh, possibility of regional. Uh, instability uh, that goes beyond just Israel in Hezbollah or mm-hmm. Israel and Iran uh, So I just wanted to reiterate that point how important Middle East the Middle East is in this great power Competition that we're going to be talking about more and more uh, in the months ahead and that in, uh, Retreating from this region is going to be the wrong approach that we have to engage we have to compete.
0: Thank you And I think that's an uh, excellent point to end on highlights the global and local therefore the global Competition that the United States faces with Russia, Hezbollah, and Iran. Oh my. Thank you, all of you, for joining us in the discussion.
3: Thank you. Thank you.